I invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles with me this morning to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, that's uh, page 1629. 1629 in your pew Bibles. We'll also be looking at a text from 1 Corinthians 7. So like, uh, like you just heard, we are in uh, the midst of a series uh, called The Bride and the Lamb, um, A Christian Perspective on Human Sexuality. And I just want to call your attention, this series kind of builds on itself. And so if you haven't been here for the first two messages, I hope you can uh, refer back to those. They are on our website. Um, but please take a listen to those. Hopefully, if this doesn't make sense, what I say this morning, it'll make a little more sense, um, hopefully and prayerfully, uh, if, if you uh, actually listen to those first messages. But we're going to dive into the topic this morning of, of singleness and the church. There are not a lot of uh, texts that actually um, speak directly to Christian singleness. And 1 Corinthians 7 is actually one of those, which I'll be referring to in a moment, but I'm not going to read that whole text, and so I'd really encourage you to spend some time, uh, perhaps later today, with the majority of that text and see what Paul actually has to say about marriage and singleness there. Uh, We're going to look at a couple of different texts and also combine those with a text that we looked at last time, and that was Matthew 19. But now let's look at uh, Luke chapter 18, and uh, this is a text in which uh, Jesus has been speaking with a young man. Uh, He's often called a rich young ruler, and um, Jesus basically told him to sell all his possessions and come and follow Jesus, and we pick up uh, the discussion there in verse 24. Jesus looked at him and said how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what's impossible with men is possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. And then I'm going to read just a couple of verses from 1 Corinthians 7. First of all, verse 7, where Paul writes this, I wish that all men were as I am, that is, single and celibate, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. And then I'll also read verse 17. Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, we can't really talk about the topic of of singleness without the words of Genesis 2.18 haunting our minds. 
Those words are these. It's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for man to be alone. Throughout the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, we are told that God looked over what He had made and we're told again and again, He saw that it was good. That was a refrain. It's repeated again and again. And He saw that it was good. And so when we get to Genesis 2.18, these words stand out to us, at least they should. We hear that something is not good. It is not good for man to be alone alone. Now, singles, I think, feel the full force of those words. Not that the rest of us don't. In fact, to some extent, we all feel the force of those words. For many of us, marriage seems to be sort of everything, almost a savior to us, to the extent that we will run into bad relationships, run into bad marriages, just so that we will not be alone. Some people stay in bad relationships, even abusive relationships, out of this fear of being alone. But friends, it's singles, I think, who feel the full force of these words. And, and we have to be careful how we, how we define this class of, of singleness. Not all singles are alike, okay? Some singles have never been married, Others have. Some are single by choice. Others are not. Some singles are widowed. Others are divorced. Some are young, but many of them are in that uh, second third or even that third third of, of life. You may be single today, but there's a good chance that one day um, you may not be single today, I should say, but one day you might be, right? Remember your marriage vows. If you said this line, until death do we part. Until death do we part. What you were saying there is marriage is not a permanent state. It does not last forever. It is not eternal. One day, in other words, we may all feel the force of these words. It's not good to be alone. And in light of that fact, the question that we as Christians have to answer is, when we are alone, is Christ enough? Is Christ enough? It's not just a question for singles. Rather, it's a question for all of us. Is Jesus Christ enough to fill me up? And as we consider that question today, we're going to, we're going to basically do three things. Okay? First of all, we're going to review a creational view of our sexuality. That's what we talked about last time to some extent. We're going to do a brief review of that. And then we're going to see how Jesus sort of overlays that view with a, a redemption view or a new creation view of our sexuality. And then finally, we're going to look at some instructions, perhaps even some warnings um, for how we can live out that new sexuality that Jesus calls us to um, today. So, let's begin by going back and, and thinking of this creation account of marriage again and, and try to get this creational view of our sexuality. What we said a couple of weeks ago is that there are three basic longings or basic needs that are exposed in those words, it's not good to be alone. One of those needs is the need for companionship or the need for community. 
God, our maker, is, is not a single being. He's a community of beings, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, living in, in unity and communion forever and ever. And we are made in the image of our God, and therefore we long for community. We long to belong, okay? We want to belong somewhere. Another of those needs that we identified is the need for intimacy, all right? We long to know and to be known. We long to stand naked before one another without shame. And then finally, we also long to be fruitful. Again, like our Creator, we long to be creative, to make space then for what we create. Again, as I said, this is after the likeness of our God who creates. He creates the world. He creates human beings. And then He makes space for them in His environment. He makes space for His creations. He's a hospitable God, a fruitful God. Now, in the original creation, what we have to understand is that these three things were best fulfilled in marriage. Okay? Marriage was created, in fact, specifically to meet these needs. And so it's in marriage that we find belonging, right? We find being with someone like us, but as we said a few weeks ago, someone who's like us but also different from us, someone who's human but also someone who's of the opposite sex. In marriage, it's also where we find intimacy, intimacy, okay? We found not, or we find not just sex in marriage, but we find consummation, right? And consummation is the completing, it's the fulfilling of a relationship. Adam says, she is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You see, the sect sex act is, is not merely a sign of, of a relationship in which two people are, f- <clears throat> excuse me, the sex act is merely a sign of a bigger relationship, all right? It's a relationship in which two people, as we said, are fully exposed to one another. They're fully known. They're naked, but they are unashamed. And then there is fruitfulness, fruitfulness in marriage, primarily found in the procreation of children, right? But there is also a sense in which this fruitfulness is found in our vocations, in providing for a spouse and for for children. God said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. We know this as the cultural mandate, right? It's not only about filling the earth with children, but it's also about filling the earth with culture. It's about vocation. Now, as I said, what we have to see is that these original creation longings, these three human needs, they were satisfied initially in marriage. Marriage is God's creational provision, His his answer to this this need not to be alone. And so marriage in the Old Testament was actually a necessity. Okay, it was a necessity. That's how it was looked upon. 
It was in marriage that people found God's blessing, his covenantal blessing. Remember what God promises to Abraham. You will have children, as many children as, as are the sands on the seashore and the stars in the sky. And through these children, through your family, I will bless all the families of the world. And so marriage and children is that is that avenue through which God blesses His people in the Old Testament. It was a place for land, right? The land was given to each family. And if your family was left out or if your family was cut off, you would lose your land as well. Those were the blessings of the covenant. Therefore, to be without marriage in the Old Testament was a dead end. It was a dead end. You lived without the covenant blessings. And singleness, therefore, is heard of very, very infrequently, if at all, in the Old Testament. In fact, singleness was dangerous for women in this society. To be unattached to a man was to have the sentence of death placed upon you. And so, one of the questions we have to ask is, where does this leave us today? If, if singleness was was barely heard of in the Old Testament, where does that leave Christian singles today? Is it still the case that if you are unattached, you lack the blessings of the covenant? There's no way for God to give you His blessings? Because actually it can feel that way sometimes. If you're single, you know that. First of all, you're alone And you're also commanded to be celibate on top of that. And it it might feel like like God created us with longings and desires, and then He gives us no means to actually fulfill those desires. And so, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to think about all of that? That's kind of the old creation view of, of human sexuality. And this is where we have to turn back now to what Jesus said in in Matthew 19. And so if you recall that text that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, in Matthew 19, Jesus there introduces the example of the eunuch. Okay, the eunuch. And the context there is a conversation with his disciples about divorce. And, And the disciples actually propose the idea that with Jesus' high view of, of marriage, that it's a lifelong relationship that should never be broken, the disciples actually propose, well, maybe it's better than if we, don't, if we don't get married at all. Maybe it's better if we do remain single. Now, again, we have to understand that at that time, this really wasn't a realistic option, right? The disciples are, are throwing out what they think is a, a crazy idea. But Jesus does not back down from his view of divorce, okay? Which is what the disciples expect him to do. Rather, what he does is he says, you know, you guys might be right about that. Singleness may, in fact, be the best option. And then he points out the eunuch, all right? And and a eunuch, as we know, is literally someone who has had their genitals cut or or crushed or removed in some way, leaving them unable to have sex. And therefore, eunuchs were by definition celibate and they were single. 
Jesus uses three different categories or refers to three different categories of eunuchs in Matthew 19. First, he says there are people who are born this way. In other words, this was of no choice of their own, uh, but the product of a disordered creation. And we'll talk about that more in future sermons. The second category is, he said, people who are made eunuchs at the hands of other human beings. Okay, and this is another way that we experience the disorder of God's creation, but we experience it through the evil acts of, of other people. And then he basically gives us another category for eunuchs. And this is a new category. It's a category where people choose the single life. They choose to be celibate. They choose not to marry. And, and Jesus is introducing here a new option for his disciples, a new way of doing life. Now, one of the ways to understand the newness of this idea that Jesus is talking about is to try and grab hold of the eunuch's situation in the ancient world. Okay? Think about the eunuch in the ancient world. We said this last time that eunuchs were pretty much despised. They were viewed as unnatural. They were viewed as different. They were banned from entering uh, the worship community with all of God's people. So why, why would Jesus sort of grab hold of the eunuch as an example for, for singleness here? There's one thing we have to consider that maybe we haven't yet. And that is that eunuchs were most often seen as a part of the king's court. In fact, they were often very trusted advisors of the king. And that was because they had sacrificed their right to marriage, their right to children, their right to sexual relations. And so there was no threat to the king's wives. There was no threat to the king's throne. In other words, eunuchs were models of devoted service to the king and to his kingdom. Let me say that again. Eunuchs were models of devoted service to the king and to his kingdom. In other words, there is a reason that Jesus latches on to the eunuch example specifically. In the old creation model, marriage was the example of the fulfilled and blessed human life. And Jesus here is not disparaging that model. He's not even replacing that model, but he's alerting us to the fact that this is now a new age. A new time has begun, and it has come with the coming of Jesus himself. And in this new age, the truly fulfilled life is not the married life. The truly fulfilled life is the life that's fully devoted to the king and his kingdom. It's the life that's fully devoted to the king and his kingdom. This is what Jesus tells us elsewhere, right? We all know the words. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek that above everything else. Full devotion to the king and kingdom will become the call for all of God's people, for married people, for single people alike. But it's for single people it's actually single people who will have a leg up on this new calling because they will be undistracted in their service to the king, just like 
the eunuch. Which leads us now to Luke chapter 18. And what Jesus says is in store for those who devote themselves completely to this higher calling. Let's just think about the text again. Here, G, or Peter comes to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, and he refers to all the disciples here. He says, hey, we've, we've left everything for you. We've left everything that we've had for you, just to come and follow you. What he's saying here is, Jesus, we've become eunuchs for you. Okay? We have put you above wives, above family, above homes, above jobs, possessions, all of it. We have made you our sole devotion, our, our entire life, is what he's saying. And notice how Jesus responds. First of all, he doesn't criticize him for kind of a proud statement or anything like that. Rather, Jesus acknowledges his sacrifice and the sacrifice of the other disciples. He says this in verse 20, 29, No one who has left home or wife or brother or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come. Okay? Hear that again. They will not fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come. Now, first of all, I just want to note this is kind of a sidebar, but let's just note the difference between Jesus and our culture today. The message we get from Jesus and the message we get from our culture. Our culture tells us don't sacrifice anything, right? You don't need to sacrifice anything. Sacrifice is the way or the path to nowhere. What our culture tells us is that the answer to our loneliness will be found in taking matters into our own hands. Okay? Joy and meaning will be found in pursuing as much sex as you can get whenever you can get it. That's what our culture tells us. Premarital sex, sex with serial partners. If you're oriented to the same sex, go ahead and indulge. This is what our culture tells us. You will find happiness in grabbing what you can get. What Jesus says is different. Jesus says, look, take all of that energy and all of that passion that's bound up in your sexuality and point it instead to me. Point it instead to the king and his kingdom. Everything you've got, that's how you will find life. That's how you will find life. When you give up your own road to intimacy, your own road to fruitfulness and belonging, and you follow Jesus, and you do things His way, then you will find those things, says Jesus. Then you will find them. And this is what He goes on to say. You will not find them just in the age to come. You will find them here and now. These things aren't just a part of the new creation. Oh, they are, says Jesus, 
full intimacy, full companionship, full belonging, full fruitfulness, all of that will be in the new creation. But you will also find that here and now. Okay, in what sense? Well, in Christ, we find true intimacy, don't we? Union with Christ, union with God. The intimacy that marriage can only point a finger to, that marriage is only a sign of, that marriage can only say, hey, look to what is coming. Marriage cannot realize this kind of intimacy. In Christ, we are fully known, and yet we are fully loved. We stand naked before God, completely exposed before God, and yet we are loved because we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Friends, do you ever feel that kind of intimacy with Christ? One good test, if you really know that kind of intimacy, is can you pray? And when you pray, can you confess your sins? Because a person who understands that when I stand before God, I am completely exposed before Him, is a person who can pray, who can name all the things that we have done wrong, that we are ashamed of. We can name all of those because we trust that Jesus Christ has paid for all of those sins. That's the intimacy we can know in Christ. And in Christ, we can also find fruitfulness, can't we? We find our vocation in what? In serving the king. We're not just serving a boss. We're serving a king. Men and women, old and young, our lives become fruitful as God uses our daily labors in law and medicine and baking and teaching and building and engineering, all of the things that build up God's kingdom in this world. It's all fruitfulness. It's all vocation. And Jesus himself commissions us to do what? To make more disciples. To make more disciples. To bear fruit. And not just more disciples, but, but to make disciples that look more and more like Jesus himself, like our master. Fruitfulness comes with devoting your life to Jesus. And then there's community or belonging. The nuclear family is no longer the sole place of belonging. Right? But rather, our first family becomes the church. The church. This is where we find, right here, this is where we find our place to belong. Okay? The church, friends, is the fulfillment of Luke chapter 18. The church is where we find a hundredfold homes, wives, brothers, sisters, parents, children, everything that we have given up for Christ. This is where we find it. And this is where we have to ask ourselves, are we the kind of church that we need to be? Are the people here finding in your children, their own children? If you are single, are you finding those things here? Are you finding the intimacy of brothers and sisters and parents and children? Parents, you have to ask yourselves once in a while, when you go to your kids' soccer games or baseball games, do you ever bring someone who's single along? Do you share your children? Sometimes we look at our children, oh man, I've got to go to another game. It's an opportunity to bring someone else into the family of God. How, how much do you open your home 
There are hundreds of homes represented here. Do you open your home to the singles? Has your home become their home? We have to answer questions like that, friends. We have to begin to answer them honestly. And this is where we also have to ask. This is the question. Is Christ enough? Is Christ enough? Is His body, His physical body in this world, is it enough? In other words, is it realistic to ask singles to give up spouses and children and family and tell them they can find all of these things a hundredfold in the church? Is that realistic? Because, friends, that is what we do with our singles, especially our singles who are same-sex oriented. We are basically saying to them, and God says to them, family is not an option for you, not blood family. But God says, but I have my church right here for you. And we have to ask, is it true? Is it enough? Is it real? Jesus said, yes, it is. It is enough. He is enough. And then he gave all of us his Holy Spirit and called us to be the church that he intended us to be. And this is where we need some help from 1 Corinthians 7. Okay? Trying to spell out how is it that we can actually live out this, this fullness of the life of Christ. How can we make Christ enough within this body? And I'll try to move through these quickly, but friends, it's not that easy. Um, but let's begin with verse 17 there, okay? Each one, Paul says, should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. To which God has called him. Let's talk about calling for a moment, because I think there's, there's, something, there's a couple things here in this chapter that we need to sort of straighten out. Are some people actually called to singleness? Are some people called to singleness and others called to marriage, to be married? Is that how things work? A lot of that has been placed on 1 Corinthians 7, and people have said, yeah, that's what Paul says, right? We're called to singleness. Actually, that's not what Paul is saying here. What we are called to is salvation. We're not called to singleness, okay? What Paul is actually telling the Corinthians here when he is speaking of calling, okay, and and actually when you do a word study on this idea of being called, usually in Scripture it's the idea that we are called to salvation, we are called to Christ, we are called into the life of discipleship and following Jesus. There are some specific calls. Yes, Paul was called by Christ to be an apostle, all right? Um, But most of the time, Scripture uses this word. It's talking about being called to salvation. And what Paul is telling the Corinthians here is he says basically this. Look, when you received your call from God, you were in all sorts of different situations, Right? Some of you were circumcised and some of you were uncircumcised. Some of you were single, some of you were married. And what Paul says is, when you were called to the salvation of Christ, to life in Christ, I want you to remain in the situation that you are in. If you're circumcised, don't change it. If you're uncircumcised, don't get circumcised. If you're single, you don't have to get married. If you're married, you don't have to be single. 
Remain in the state that you are in when you were called. That was Paul's message to the Corinthians. And so what he's saying here is, look, being single or married is not a calling. It's a status. It's simply a state of being. And in either status, whether you're married or single, you're called to live out your salvation. You're called to serve Jesus Christ. You're called to be fully devoted to Him. Married, single, fully devoted to Jesus Christ. Next question, verse 7. I wish that all men were as I am, single, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift another that. It's a spiritual gift. And the question always comes up, is there a spiritual gift of singleness? Is there a spiritual gift of singleness? And the idea here is that we think some people, not everyone, but some people are just gifted to be single, right? In other words, to put it crudely, there are some people who receive a special grace from God not to desire sex, not to desire a family so that they can serve God unhindered. Is there a spiritual gift of singleness? Again, the answer is no. That's not what Paul is teaching. At least I don't think so. Spiritual gift, the Greek word there is grace, okay? And spiritual gifts, according to 1 Corinthians 12, are manifestations of the Spirit for the common good. They're not for your good. You receive God's gift of grace, not for yourself, but for the common good, for the others in the community of Christ. In other words, are given um, by God for the good of the people around us. Now, singles are in the position to serve God and to further His kingdom, as we said, without distractions and the stresses of married life. In this way, you yourself as a single are a gift to the church. You are a gift to the community because you can serve our Lord without distraction. Friends, the stresses of married life are real, okay? Responsibilities for family, for spouse are to be taken very seriously. I mean, how often don't we hear ourselves say, well, I can't go to that or I can't go to that meeting because I've got to do this, right? I've got to make a, a, a children's baseball game today or I've got to run an errand for my wife. Those are all very important things to do, all right? We have responsibilities to the commitments that we have made, and God expects us to keep those responsibilities, keep those commitments. In many cases, Singles are free from many of these same responsibilities, and therefore they are a gift to the church in that they can serve in ways that many of us cannot. Where the whole idea of grace comes in is that while you are single, while you are single, God gives you the grace that's necessary to be in that state of singleness in a way that is honoring to Him. Okay? In a way that's honoring to Him. It's not like the gift is this crazy desire not to have sex or not to marry or have a family. The gift is that while you are single, there is grace for you to live well and to honor God 
in your singleness. It also does not mean that you need to be single forever. Some people think that. Well, I I must have the gift of singleness, and therefore I've got to be single the rest of my life. That's not true. The gift is for you while you are single. Okay? So, how do you know if you're called to be married or if you're called to be single? This is the answer. When you're single, your call is to be a faithful steward of your singleness. And when you are married, you're called to be a faithful steward of your marriage. Our calling is to faithfully use these states of life to bless other people. Let's just think a little bit more about what it means, okay, to be stewards of our singleness and stewards of our marriages. And I'm just going to end with some practical things here, right? So if you're gracious enough to give me a few more minutes of your time, let's talk about what that looks like to steward our marriages and to steward our singleness. First of all, let's think about stewarding our marriages, okay? Um, One of the best ways to steward our marriages is to recognize that our marriages are penultimate. Our marriages are not ultimate, okay? Our marriages are not the end or the goal. Rather, they are always pointers to that greater intimacy, that greater belonging, that greater fruitfulness in the kingdom of God. And therefore, to steward marriage is then to recognize that our marriage as well must always serve the king and his kingdom. Okay? When we fail to see this, our marriages become idols. Where our marriages become ultimate, they become idols, and we lose sight of the kingdom. We lose sight of what God intended them for. When God gives us marriage and gives us children, what's he trying to teach us? He's trying to teach us how to make room for other people, right? Spouses and children, they kind of just shoulder their way into your lives. But what God is saying is, I want you to learn how to make room for other people in life, okay? And where that happens is in the church, When we in our marriages learn those gifts of making room for little faces and hands and feet around the table, what we should be learning is how to extend that into the church, into the community of God's people. We should be learning how to invite more people to become a part of our lives. Okay, if you think about it, good parents don't treat their children like an inconvenience, do they? And, and good parents don't make you feel lucky that you have a bed and a blanket in your house, right? Good parents make you feel welcome. Friends, singles in our churches do not always feel that welcome, okay? They often feel like a fifth wheel. Sometimes, sometimes they're widows or widowers. They're coming out of a marriage in which they were always included in things, and suddenly it's like, it's like nobody knows them anymore. Or you have, you have children growing up in pews with their parents and people smile at them and love them and know their names and then all of a sudden they're sitting in the pew by themselves and nobody seems to recognize them. Maybe it was a different church where they grew up in the pew. 
And all of a sudden, I'm unknown. I kind of, I kind of relate this to um, student athletes, right? They come out of high school, and they're like star basketball players, right? And, and everybody sort of wows them and acknowledges their, their skills and their gifts and cheers them on. And then they get to college, and they're riding the end of the bench, and they might get a few mercy minutes at the end of the game, right? And sometimes that's how singles feel. Like they're coming out of these situations where they were loved and respected and acknowledged and all of a sudden it's like they're riding at the end of the bench asking for mercy relationships. That's not stewarding marriage well. In a marriage we're always making room for more people and we have to make room for singles in our lives. Now, um, just to be fair, Let's talk about what it means to steward singleness as well. How do we do that well? A couple of things here. First of all, let's acknowledge singleness is really hard. At least it can be. Both Jesus and Paul allude to this. They say it's not for everyone. Not everyone can do this. It's hard. Friends, At the same time, to be a good steward of our singleness is to put your suffering in the greater context of the suffering of Christ and the suffering of all of his people. Being a Christian is hard. It really is. Single Christians are not the only ones who are asked to do hard things. Our society makes singleness look like, oh, it's an unreasonable ask. It's the hardest thing in the world. Think about what some of our fellow Christians have gone through. I'll never forget hearing the story of Bethany Haley Williams. I heard she spoke in a January series a number of years ago. But Bethany um, was actually a part of the Lord's Liberation Army in Uganda. Okay? She was kidnapped at the age of, of nine. Imagine that. And then she was forced to participate in the murders of her mother and also other family members. It was either kill or be killed. She was forced to walk through her village and other villages collecting body parts, picking up the body parts of her neighbors and family members. Somebody asked her this question in the interview with her. So this is a few years after she got out of this all. And she was asked, if you could talk to the rebels today, what would you say? And she said, come home so we can forgive you. The question asked again, how could you possibly say that? And she said, because God said we have to forgive. She understood, friends, that the Christian life is hard. She understood that our Savior went to the cross and gave his whole life. She understood that following in the footsteps of that Savior means discipleship is hard. We have to get past this idea, and this is not just for singles, We have to, in the church, get past this idea that the Christian life should be easy and convenient and fun. That was never the promise. And we're messing up our singles 
And we're messing up Christians with that message that it should be easy. Here's another one. In your singleness, learn what true love is and then teach it to the rest of us. Learn what true love is and teach it to the rest of us. Preston Sprinkle um, writes on these issues quite often. He asks the question, is sex equal to love? And he says, most of us know the answer, that no, sex and love are not the same thing. And yet he says, you know, we seem to think that denying people sex is the end of life and unthinkable suffering. And at the same time, we don't seem to care at all about denying people love. Friends, in your singleness, in your celibacy, you know the difference between sex and real love and real intimacy. And we, you know that intimacy is truly available to you. It's something that sometimes married people forget. Remember the person of David, okay? David in Scripture, King David. David had basically all the sex that he wanted, whatever he wanted, often with people that he shouldn't have had it with. But what David says to his friend Jonathan sticks out in our minds. He says to Jonathan, your love to me was better than the love of a woman. What David is saying is, Jonathan, I had intimacy with you. We were serving our king together. We were serving God's kingdom together. In our friendship, we knew each other in a way far better than sex. That kind of intimacy is available to us as Christians. We have to learn that it is. We have to seek it. And friends, singles, you can teach us that. One last thing, and then I'll stop. So married people have to work at community. Single people, you have to work at community too. One of the things you realize in a marriage is that being hospitable, making room for others, it's hard work. Okay? Moving car seats in and out of cars, cleaning up Cheerios and French fries, all of that kind of stuff. You do it to make room for your children. You learn a lesson along the way that sometimes it's just really hard to make room for other people. Singles, you have to learn that lesson as well. Okay? Ask yourself sometime, when you're part of your life group, whose, whose house is your life group always meeting at? And why is that? <laughs> is there someone who's married who's always, you know, making the food and cleaning the room and making sure that the room is comfortable and there's enough furniture and all of that kind of stuff? Ask yourself, do you ever see yourself willing to put in the kind of work that it takes to have that kind of community? When was the last time you learned how to make a new dish? When was the last time you thought, well, maybe I should buy a high chair just to have it available in case someone brings children over? It's on all of us to put in the work to create the kind of community in which we can say, you know what? 
Jesus is enough. He's enough for all of us. Jesus is enough. Let's come to the Lord's table. Lord Jesus, we come before you as married people. We come before you as singles. But much more than that, we come before you as your disciples. People who are devoted to Jesus and who want to be more devoted. And we come to your table again this morning recognizing that you indeed were fully devoted to us and still are. You gave everything. And so give us your spirit that when we eat and drink, we may respond with full devotion to you. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.